It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, the podcast that takes you on adventures into the wild for encounters with our amazing wildlife, helps you meet interesting rural folk, and provides a welcome blast of freedom and fresh air. My name's Fergus Collins, and I'm the editor of the magazine. In this podcast, or podcast as we now know it, we're taking an escape into the Wiltshire countryside of the late 19th century. Richard Jeffries was a countryman who grew up on the edge of Swindon from where he could explore the wonderful chalk downs of Wessex. He wrote some absolutely beautiful books about country life and had a fantastic eye for nature. Recently I was reading his wonderful book The Amateur Poacher and I came across a very moving passage where he talks about a particular countryside character that no longer exists. The Moocher or Moucher. I can't decide which, I think it's Moocher. I hope you won't mind if I share it with you. There were several other curious characters whom we frequently saw at work. The moochers were about all the year round and seemed to live in or by the hedges as much as the mice. These men probably see more than the most careful observer without giving it a thought. The stubbles, those that remain, are full of linnets, upon which the mooching fowler preys in the late autumn. And when, at the end of January, the occasional sunbeams give some faint hope of spring, he wanders through the lanes carrying a decoy bird in a darkened cage, and a few boughs of privet studded with blackberries and bound round with rushes for the convenience of handling. The female yellowhammers, whose hues are not so brilliant as those of the male birds, seem as winter approaches to flock together and roam the hedges and stubble fields in bevies. Where loads of corn have passed through gates, the bushes often catch some straws, and the tops of the gateposts, being decayed and ragged, hold others. 
These are neglected, while the seeds among the stubble, the charlock, and the autumn dandelion are plentiful, and while the ears left by the gleaners may still be found. But in the shadowless winter days, hard and cold, each scattered straw is sought for. It is probable that in severe and continued frost, many hedgehogs die. On January the 19th, 1879, in the midst of the sharp weather, a hedgehog came to the door opening on the garden at night and was taken in. Though carefully tended, the poor creature died next day. It was so weak it could scarcely roll itself into a ball. As the vital heat declined, the fleas deserted their host and issued from among the spines. The moocher now carries a bill hook, and as he shambles along the road, keeps a sharp lookout for briars. When he sees one, the roots of which are not difficult to get at, and whose tall upright stem is green, if dark it is too old, he hacks it off with as much of the root as possible. The lesser branches are cut, and the stem generally trimmed. It is then sold to the gardeners as the stock on which to graft standard roses. In a few hours, as he travels, he will get together quite a bundle of such briars. He also collects moss, which is sold for the purpose of placing in flower pots to hide the earth. The moss preferred is that growing on and round stools. The melting of the snow and the rains in February causes the ditches to overflow and form shallow pools in the level meadows. Into these, sometimes, the rooks wade as far as the length of their legs allows them till the discoloured yellow water almost touches the lower part of the breast. The moocher searches for small shell snails, of which quantities are sold as food for cage birds, and cuts small turfs a few inches square from the green by the roadside. These are in great request for larks, especially at this time of year, when they begin to sing with all their might. Large flocks of wood pigeons are now in every field where the tender swede and turnip tops are sprouting green and succulent. These tops are the mooch's first great crop of the year. The time that they appear varies with the weather. In a mild winter, some may be found early in January. If the frost has been severe, there may be none till March. These the moocher gathers by stealth. He speedily fills a sack and goes off with it to the nearest town. Turnip tops are much more in demand now than formerly, and the stealing of them a more serious matter. This trade lasts some time till the tops become too large and garden greens take their place. Going to and fro the fields, the moocher searches the banks and digs out primrose mars and ferns with the root attached, which he hawks from door to door in the town. He also gathers quantities of spring flowers as violets. This spring, owing to the severity of the season, there were practically none to gather, and when the weather moderated, the garden flowers preceded those of the hedge. Till the 10th of March, not a spot of colour was to be seen. About that time, bright yellow flowers appeared suddenly on the clay banks and waste places, and among the hard clay lumps of fields, ploughed but not sown. The brilliant yellow formed a striking contrast to the dull brown of the clods, there being no green leaf to moderate the extremeness of tint. These were the blossoms of the coltsfoot that send up a stalks rounded with faintly rosy scales. Now the frogs are busy and the land lizards come forth. 
Even these the Mucha sometimes captures, for there is nothing so strange but that someone selects it for a pet. The mad March hares scamper about in broad daylight over the corn, whose pale green blades rise in straight lines a few inches above the soil. They are chasing their skittish loves, instead of soberly dreaming the day away in a bunch of grass. The plowman walks in the furrow his share has made and presently stops to measure the lands with the spud. His horses halt dead in the tenth of a second at the sound of his voice, glad to rest for a minute from their toil. Work there is in plenty now for stone picking, hoeing, and other matters must be attended to, but the moocher lounges in the road decoying chaffinches, or perhaps earns a shilling by driving some dealer's cattle home from fair and market. By April, his second great crop is ready, the watercress. The precise time, of course, varies very much, and at first the quantities are small. The hedges are now fast putting on the robe of green that gradually hides the wreck of last year's growth. The withered head of teasel, black from the rain, falls and disappears. Great burdock stems lie prostrate, thick and hard as they are while the sap is still in them. In winter, the wet ground rots the lower part till the blast overthrows the stalk. The hollow gix, too, that lately stood almost to the shoulder, is down or slanting, temporarily supported by some branch. Just between the root and the stalk, it has decayed till nothing but a narrow strip connects the dry upper part with the earth. The moocher sells the nests and eggs of small birds to townsfolk who cannot themselves wander among the fields but who love to see something that reminds them of the green meadows. As the season advances and the summer comes, he gathers vast quantities of dandelion leaves, parsley, sow thistle, clover and so forth, as food for the tame rabbits of the town. If his haunt be not far from a river, he spends hours collecting bait, worm, grub and fly, for the boatmen who sell them again to the anglers. Again there is work in the meadows, the haymaking is about, and the farmers are anxious for men. But the moocher passes by and looks for quaking grass, bunches of which have a ready sale. Fledgling goldfinches and linnets, young rabbits and young squirrels, even the nest of the harvest trow mouse, and occasionally a snake, bring him a little money. He picks the forget-me-nots from the stream and the blue bottle from the corn. Bunch the latter are sometimes sold in London at a price that seems extravagant to those who have seen whole fields tinted with its beautiful azure. By and by, the golden wheat calls for an army of workers, but the moocher passes on and gathers groundsel. Then come the mushrooms. He knows the best places and soon fills a basket full of buttons, picking them very early in the morning. These are then put in punnets by the greengrocers and retailed at a high price. Later, the blackberries ripen and form his third great crop. The quantity he brings into the towns is astonishing, and still there is always a customer. The blackberry harvest lasts for several weeks, as the berries do not all ripen at once, but successively, and is supplemented by elderberries and sloes. The moocher sometimes sleeps on the heaps of disused tan in a tanyard. Tanyards are generally on the banks of small rivers. The tan is said to possess the property of preserving those who sleep on it from chills and cold, though they may lie quite exposed to the weather. 
There is generally at least one such man as this about the outskirts of market towns, and he is an original, best defined by negatives. He is not a tramp, for he never enters the casual wards, and never begs. Never begs, that is, of strangers. Though there are certain farmhouses that he calls once now and then, and gets a slice of bread and cheese and a pint of ale. He brings to the farmhouse a duck's egg that has been dropped in the brook by some negligent bird, or carries intelligence of the nest made by some roaming goose in a distant withy bed. Or once, perhaps, he found a sheep on its back in a narrow furrow, unable to get up and likely to die if not assisted, and by helping the animal to gain its legs, earned a title to the owner's gratitude. He is not a thief. Apples and plums and so on are quite safe, though the turnip tops are not. There is a subtle casuistry involved here, the distinction between the quasi-wild and the garden product. He is not a poacher in the sense of entering coverts, or even snaring a rabbit. If the pheasants are so numerous and so tame that passing carters have to whip them out of the way of their horses, it is hardly wonderful if one should disappear now and again. Nor is he like the running jack that used to accompany the more famous packs of foxhounds, opening gates, holding horses, and a hundred other little services, and who kept up with the hunt by sheer fleetness of foot. Yet he is fleet of foot in his way, though never seemed to run. He pads along on naked feet like an animal, never straightening the leg, but always keeping the knee a little bent. With a basket of watercress slung on his back, by a piece of tar cord, he travels rapidly in this way. His feet go pad pad, pad pad, on the thick white dust, and he easily overtakes a good walker and keeps up the pace for miles without exertion. The watercress is a great staple because it lasts for so many months. Seeing the nimble way in which he gathers it, thrusting aside the brook climb, breaking off the coarser sprays, snipping away pieces of root sorting and washing, and thinking of the amount of work to be got through before a shilling is earned, one would imagine that the slow, idling life of the labourer, with his regular wages, would be far more enticing. Near the stream, the ground is perhaps peaty. Little black pools appear between tufts of grass, some of them streaked with a reddish or yellowish slime that glistens on the surface of the dark water, and as you step, there is a hissing sound as the spongy earth yields, and a tiny spout is forced several yards distant. Some of the drier part of the soil, the moocher takes to sell for use in gardens and flower pots as peat. The years roll on and he grows old, but no feebleness of body and mind can induce him to enter the workhouse. He cannot quit his old haunts. Let it rain or sleet, or let the furious gale drive broken boughs across the road. He still sleeps in some shed or under a straw rick. In sheer pity, he is committed every now and then to prison for vagabondage, not for punishment, but in order to save him from himself. It is in vain. The moment he is out, he returns to his habits. All he wants is a little beer. He's not a drunkard. And a little tobacco. And the hedges. Some chilly evening, as the shadows thicken, he shambles out of the town and seeks the lime kiln in the ploughed field, where, the substratum being limestone, the farmer burns it. Near the top of the kiln, the ground is warm, and there he reclines and sleeps. The night goes on. 
Out from the broken blocks of stone now and again there rises a lambent flame to shine like a meteor for a moment and then disappear. The rain falls. The moocher moves uneasily in his sleep. Instinctively he rolls or crawls towards the warmth and presently lies extended on the top of the kiln. The wings of the waterfowl hurtle in the air as they go over. By and by the heron utters his loud call. Very early in the morning, the quarryman comes to tend his fire and starts to see on the now red-hot and glowing stones, sunk below the rim, the presentment of a skeleton formed of the purest white ashes, a ghostly spectacle in the grey of the dawn, as the mist rises and the peewit plaintively whistles over the marshy meadow. So that was a chapter from Richard Jeffries' The Amateur Poacher. And I'd like to say a special thank you to the Crows and Jackdaws for their encouragement throughout. I hope that dust chorus wasn't too distracting. So that's a very typical piece of writing by this author. As he tells us about the moocher's life over the years, he can't help diverting to talk about nature, which I find very endearing. You can find the full text of The Amateur Poacher online if you'd like to read more. I'd also recommend his wonderful book about the Wessex Downs called Wildlife of a Southern County. The most recent edition is published by Little Toller Books and has a fitting introduction by King of Nature writing Richard Maybe, who is also an expert on Richard Jeffries. I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. Do let me know by emailing editor at countryfile.com and you can find all the wonders of the countryside at our website countryfile.com. It's a brilliant resource for country crafts, recipes, stories and adventures, and particularly useful during the current lockdown when many of us can't escape to the countryside as much as we'd like to. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.